listening to Formby Podcast. For this episode, we're at the Masonic Lodge in Southport. Our thanks go to them. This is the story of the last few hours of the Mexico. Our story begins in T.R. Oswald's shipyard in Sunderland in 1860 with the launch of the ship John Bull. Later, to become infamous for the part it played in the greatest loss of lifeboat men in the history of the RNLI. John Bull was a 484-ton iron-hulled bark. Well, that's a three-mast sailing ship. The John Bull had no engine. At just over 150 foot long, 27 and a half feet wide, and with a depth from keel to gunwale of 17 foot, she was a small ship by modern standards. Between 1860 and 1881, she had several owners and sailed the world going as far as New Zealand. In 1881, she was bought by Eutlin Gebruder of Hamburg and renamed Mexico. Lloyd's Register records her master for the next five years as Captain Gustav Burmeister. So by 1896, he was very experienced with sailing her. December that year found her in Liverpool where she collected a mixed cargo that included machetes, brass candlesticks, barrels of cement, and so on, ready for a voyage round Cape Horn to Ecuador. Records say that she was inspected in a Liverpool dry dock before she left, her cargo being insured for 60,000 marks. A lot of money in those days. So we can only presume that she and her crew were thought to be fit for the sea. The following information comes from the German inquiry into the loss of the Mexico held in Hamburg on the 14th of January, 1887, for which we thank the International Maritime Museum in Hamburg and the Bridget at the Sutenlinstuhl for their assistance with the transliteration. We also gathered information contained in various publications, especially David Forshow's On Those Infernal Ribble Banks and The Wreck of the Mexico by the late Frank Kilroy, to all of whom we offer our grateful thanks. Ladies, gentlemen, brethren, To set the scene for the story, let us look at the board before you. In explanation, the green is the coastline and the blues, Liverpool Bay and the Irish Sea. The light blue represents the shallows around the coast and especially the drying sandbanks off the Southport and form because. For better viewing, taking account of space constraints, the scale of the outline has been slightly distorted, so the ratio of the distance between Liverpool and Anglesey with respect to Liverpool and St Anne's is one to four. 
Water depths in this narrative are given in fathoms. One fathom, as you know, being six feet. There are various points that will be referred to in the narrative that we will now mark with lights. Lighthouses at Great Orm Head on the Welsh coast, Port Linus on Anglesey and Langness Point, and Douglas Head on the Isle of Man. Also central to the story are two light ships, the Liverpool Bar and the North West. Other places essential to our story are the infamous Horseback and the lifeboat stations at St Anne's, Lytham and Southport. <coughs> Together with their lifeboats, respectively, Laura Janet, Charles Biggs and Eliza Fernley. To give you a better idea of the true size of these lifeboats, this little model is about 50 times too long. Day one. Our story commences with the Mexico being towed out of Liverpool with a pilot on board at 10 o'clock on Sunday the 5th of December to start her 11,000-mile voyage to Guayaquil on the Pacific coast of Ecuador. With the wind described as moderate, to get her safely from Liverpool Bay and into the Irish Sea, she was to be towed by the steam tug Conqueror as far as Holyhead. At two o'clock in the afternoon, the bar was passed, and with the wind freshening, the pilot was taken off the Mexico and on to the lightship. By six o'clock, she was at the northwest lightship, situated nine miles to seawards <coughs> off the bar. The wind continued strengthening, and by eleven o'clock that night, Great Orm's Head Lighthouse could be seen to the west-southwest, approximately. 10 miles away. Because the wind had become too strong, the tug wanted uh, the tow to be discontinued. But Captain Burmeister wanted to be towed on to Holyhead. The tug's skipper refused to go on. So Burmeister agreed with him that they should be towed back to a safer position. And they turned and went back towards the Mersey. At daybreak, on day two, the sixth, the wind calmer, they arrived at the bar. Conqueror was low on coal and refused to tell the Mexico any further. She stood by her until between eight and nine o'clock, until a pilot got on board and, with his assistance, Mexico set off under sail for Point Linus, 
the lighthouse where the pilots usually boarded ships heading into the Mersey. The Mexico was sailing against a southwest wind, which by noon had again become what was described as stormy, and the sail area had to be reduced. By 12 noon on day three, the wind had become even stronger, and that afternoon the pilot was taken off near Point Linus. With only half her sails set, the Mexico then jibed, that is, she turned by sailing away from the wind. In good visibility, but with the wind at storm force from the west-southwest, at 10 o'clock the lights of the Isle of Man could be seen. By 11 o'clock, with the wind backing towards the south, the captain had the Mexico hove to. For those who, like me, don't sail, this means that the sail and rudder were lashed in such a position as to stop the ship sailing forwards. This is a technique, technique used to help ride out bad weather. And although the ship still moves a little, it pretty much drifts with the current or tide. The Mexico's position at around midnight was fixed from sightings off the Douglas Head Light, seen clearly to the north by northwest. And the flash from the light at Langness Point to the northwest by west. By three o'clock on the morning of day four, the Mexico was being blown to the north, so the mainsail and jib had to be taken down. Then at seven o'clock, with the ship still hove to, the wind turned west again, and by noon was storm force. Throughout the day and night, the crew was on deck and constantly trimming the sails. Then, as the barometer fell, the main staysail was torn away. At four in the morning of day five, the ninth, the great Orm's head light could be seen, and to keep clear of land, and with most of sails in shreds, Captain Burmeister jived the Mexico again, and sailed with the wind heading back into the shelter of Liverpool Bay. The wind constantly changed, going from northerly to southerly and pushing the Mexico nearer and nearer to the shore until when about 10 o'clock, the crew believed they could see the Northwest Lightship again. So they hoisted the international flag letter G, the signal flag requesting a pilot to come on board. But a pilot never came. Heavy rain reduced visibility and high waves washed over the deck, taking loose objects, even the water barrels, 
overboard. At midday, the water depth was measured as 13 fathoms, and the distance to the coast was estimated to be 20 miles. However, with the ship getting about two miles closer to the shore every hour, and if the weather did not improve or the wind changed, the crew were afraid that they would not be able to keep the ship away from the coast. Ships needed to know how deep the water is, and by comparing the actual depth with the chart depth, the ship's position can be estimated. <laughs> with no modern electronics, water depth had to be measured by dropping a lead weight on a marked road. At three o'clock in the afternoon, the weather cleared up a bit, and land was seen on both sides, the depth of water being ten fathoms. The crew were summoned to the bridge, and they decided to go inshore until they were in five to six fathoms of water, and then to anchor and cut down the masts and spars to help reduce the rolling of the ship in the heavy seas and reduce the load on the anchor chain. By four o'clock in the afternoon, the Mexico was in eight fathoms of water and the foremast and the mainmast were cut off, leaving just the mizzen mast standing. That is, the one near the stern. As darkness fell, both anchors were lowered about 60 fathoms of chain to try to stop the ship getting any nearer the shore. At this time, the pumps had been keeping the water in the bilges down to a few inches, meaning the ship was still reasonably watertight, despite the battering she was receiving. After half an hour, it was realised the chains had broken and the ship was again drifting towards the shore. Suddenly, the water depth dropped to four fathoms. When fully loaded and in calm water, the Mexico needed about two fathoms in which to sail. In the conditions that night, with big waves, she was close to running aground, and so the remaining but lighter kedge anchor was lowered, dragging 90 fathoms of heavy rope. That rope broke after about <coughs> 20 minutes, leaving the ship to drift inexorably towards the land behind which they could see the lights of a town and a railway. At about nine o'clock, Captain Burmeister ordered blue lights to be lit, as this was the recognised emergency signal. These were acknowledged from the land with green rockets from the South Southport Lifeboat House and by 10 o'clock in the evening, in a violent 
west-north-west gale, with heavy seas and snow showers, the Mexico was driven onto horseback as the Mexico ran aground, the captain ordered the crew to lash themselves to the remaining spars. And that is how the lifeboat crew found them. In 1886, communications were very limited, both at sea and on shore. Ships used maritime signal flags and semaphore with lights at night. Voice radio and radio Morse code were still in the future. On land, telegraph and telegrams were more common than the new telephone. Communications between the lifeboat stations that night were almost entirely by telegram. And once the lifeboats had been launched, there was no communication with them or between them, which perhaps may have contributed to the extent of the disaster. Once launched, they could not be recalled. Boats are now equipped with the most sophisticated and up-to-date means of communication. And of course, as we know, almost every one of us these days has a mobile phone, probably with us here tonight. <laughs> as was their custom in bad weather, the crew of the Southport lifeboat Elias Fernley kept watch for ships in distress and saw the Mexico about noon. At first she was presumed to be safely at anchor, but as the night fell, watchers thought that she had drifted towards the shore. Visibility was bad, and it was not until the distress signals from the Mexico were seen that they knew she had been driven ashore and wrecked. Blue light distress signals from the Mexico were seen pretty much simultaneously by watchers in both Southport and St. Anne's. And shortly afterwards, the lifeboat guns or maroons were fired to call the crews to the boats. Walkers on Lytham Green heard the St. Anne's gun and runners were then sent to call out the Lytham crew. Although the last to be called out, the Lytham crew were the first to get their boat, Charles Biggs, into the water at 10 o'clock that night. And shortly thereafter, it was heading down river under oars and sails before then crossing the banks through the stormy seas. Now, under oars alone, to get to the south side of the estuary, opposite what is now Fairhaven. Charles Biggs was a new lifeboat, and this was to be only her second launching and her maiden rescue. The St. Dan's crew assembled, but owing to the distances they had to travel, took longer 
to get the boat away. John Wignall hired a cab in Lytham, and the last man aboard was the coxswain, William Johnson, who ran from Commonside about two miles. Dressed in heavy clothing and boots, he was not surprised that it, he was exhausted when he got into the boat and actually had to be helped into it. Even with that delay, not all the regular crew had arrived and several volunteers had made up the 13 crew. It was 10.25 when the Laura Janet was launched into the heavy surf and under oars until when 50 yards out she was seen to hoist her sail and disappear into the darkness. Meanwhile, at Southport, because of the position of the Mexico, it was decided that the Eliza Fernley should be taken along the coast nearer to the wreck. So three men were sent to fetch the horses. When they returned, the ten seats of the oars were already taken, and an argument ensued, which in the end was resolved by taking three extra men and double banking the oars. The boat and 16 crew were hauled for three and a half miles along the foreshore, past the Palace Hotel, by only four horses, not the usual eight. And together with the men, of the launching party. The journey in heavy rain and sleet, having taken well over an hour, the Eliza Fermi was launched at about 11 o'clock that night. As they passed the Palace Hotel, the weather had cleared and the Mexico could be seen with only one of her three masts still remaining. During this time, the Charles Biggs had crossed the estuary and using the Penfold Channel, had by then, back under sail, entered the South Channel, which runs parallel to the shore, past Southport Pier. When about half a mile from the Mexico, the sails and masts were taken down and the oars again used. By then it was about 12.30 on Friday the 10th and a ferocious squall hit the Charles Biggs, almost overturning her and snapping three oars. She righted herself and then using her anchors approached the Mexico, which was almost on its side. A rope was then dropped and the crew used it to scramble aboard the tossing lifeboat, which was regularly filled by the huge waves. Captain Burmeister was the last to leave his ship, and then after breaking another oar pushing away from the wreck, the Charles Biggs was finally pulled away using her anchor. 
using the South Channel, she headed off towards Lytham. After launching sometime before one o'clock in the morning through the heavy shore surf, the South boat lifeboat Eliza, Eliza Fernley, approached so close to the Mexico that according to the narrative of the two survivors, one of the lifeboatmen was about to throw a line. But at this moment, their boat swung broadside onto the sea and a huge mountain of water filled it up and turned it completely over, burying the majority of its crew beneath it. Although the boat was designed to be self-righting, she remained upside down, probably because the anchor, which was loose and about to be dropped, was hanging below the hull. Also, the oars were still spread and attached to their throw pins. It is almost certain that by the time the Southport boat got close to the Mexico, her crew had already been rescued by the Charles Biggs from Lytham. Crewman Henry Hodges watched had stopped at 12.40 in the morning, which may have been the time the Eliza firmly capsized. Seeing a boat in the South Channel, the Southport launch crew and those near the pier assumed it was the Eliza Fernley and headed back towards the boathouse, taking the launching carriage with them. From the pier head, some tried to attract the passing Charles Biggs without success. And it was then realised that something may have happened to the Eliza firmly. A search was then begun along the Southport shore. By then, with between six and nine of her crew trapped under her, the Eliza firmly had washed up unseen on the deserted beach. Scattered along the beach and in the hull, there were many bodies. Three crewmen were found alive by the search parties, Second Coxon, Ralph Peters and Peter Jackson, but both died shortly after they were found. John Ball was found standing in a pool of water at a quarter past four and survived until that evening when he died in hospital. Today's health care would have probably saved all three. Of the 16 who set out, only two were left alive at the end of that night. Afterwards, the coaching house of the Birkdale Palace Hotel 
which remains today as the fisherman's arrest public house, was used to lay out the bodies, and the hotel itself was the venue for the coroner's inquiry. After the Laura Janet disappeared into the darkness of the night, no one knows exactly what happened to her before she was found ashore next day to seaward off the Palace Hotel, Birkdale, at one o'clock in the afternoon, bottom up, with three dead crew hanging over the thwarts, their heads downwards. Other bodies were found at various times along the beach. It will never be known exactly what her fate was, but one of the bodies found in the hull had a watch that had stopped at 2.30 in the morning. Two faint red lights in the area of Spencer's Bank, reportedly seen from Southport, may have been the lifeboat. She probably capsized off there near Horse Bank, where her sails, mast, and some of her gear were found the following afternoon. It may be that after she first capsized, she remained anchored for several hours before breaking free, which would indeed account for the faint light seen until about 2.30 in the morning. Once free, she would have been swept broadside towards Southport Beach, where she finally capsized in water that was far too shallow for her to self-right. With the tide ebbing, the crew had to push their boat across the last bank and into the gut channel. So the Charles Biggs returned to Lytham Boathouse at 3.15 in the morning to a cheering crowd and a hero's welcome, having saved all the crew of the Mexico. This was, of course, just after the Eliza Fernwick had been found and the horror of the night was about to fully unfold. The rescued sailors were taken to the railway hotel, now owned by Weatherspoons for hot food and drinks. At St. Anne's, they had waited all night for a sighting of the Laura Janet. And as the telegraph offices opened in the morning, all the lifeboat stations along the file and Liverpool Bay coastline were contacted to see if their boat had been sighted. The news from Southport, giving the fate of their boat, increased concern for the St Anne's boat. And the Charles Biggs was launched again at 10.30 in the morning with the same exhausted crew and also Captain Burmeister on board. They were joined in the search by the Blackpool lifeboat Samuel Fletcher of Manchester. Just before noon, the Charles Biggs went alongside Southport Beer and the already grief-stricken Southport townsfolk, realising the Laura Janet was still missing, started a new search. 
which resulted in her being sighted, capsized off the shore from the Palace Hotel at one o'clock. The news was telegraphed back to St Anne's. Many were waiting at the house of Charles Macarda's house, chairman of the St Anne's lifeboat, and one of the few people with access to a telephone. The telegraph office contacted him by telephone to give him and those waiting with him the dreadful news. 44 brave men set sail that night to rescue 12 strangers and as a result left behind 16 widows, 50 orphans and other dependent relatives. The aftermath of this story forms part of Lytham, St Anne's and Southport local history. More details of the individuals in the crews are contained in the leaflets which you will find at the festive board on your tables. As it was said at the beginning, this presentation came about as a result of the donation of £100,000 towards the latest St Anne's lifeboat, the Shannon-class Barbara-Anne, by the Mark Province of West Lancashire and Grand Mark Lodge Charities. But the connection with Freemasonry on the Fylde Coast goes back at least to the Laura Janet's replacement the Nora Royds, paid for by Colonel Sir Clement Mullineau Royds and named after his wife. He was a Rochdale Freemason and an MP for Rochdale from 1895 to 1906. He was a nephew of Albert Hudson Royds, a banker and prominent Rochdale Freemason. Albert's son, a cousin by marriage of Nora Royds, was Clement Robert Nuttall Beswick Royds and his son Clement Helliwell Beswick Royds. In 1980s, they became both members of the Lodge of Triumph in, in, in St Anne's, and in those days, they commenced the county uh, the commercial hotel in Lytham. Thank you, David. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Can I thank you all for coming to see this presentation, which seeks to give a slightly different insight into the loss of the Mexico, which still remains the worst disaster in, the, in terms of loss of lifeboat crew in the history of the RNOI. And I do appreciate that Southport has a different lifeboat these days, uh, but we are going back 100 years or more than 100 years. And I would also say that this was written originally for a presentation at St Anne's, and it was given to the St Anne's lifeboat. Um, the presentation team tonight are all members of Semper Fidelis Lodge of Mark Master Masons from St Anne's. And as you will find out later, Freemasons and our lodge 
and its members have had a long association with the St Anne's RNLI and the Mexico Memorial is depicted on our banner and summonses. This presentation was originally given by Semper Fidelis Lodge as part of the 2019 file group of Mark Lodge Festival. We chose the subject because West Lancashire Mark Masons had recently donated £20,000 to the new St Anne's lifeboat, the Barbara Ann. And this magnificent sum was matched by the Grand Mark Charity with a further donation of £80,000, making £100,000 in total. The new lifeboat had cost the RNLI about £2.5 million, and they require their local lifeboat association to raise 10% of that sum, which is what our donations went towards. This evening, we will try to tell a little of the story of the Mexico and its consequences, and, and, sorry, and the consequences of the rescue efforts on the local communities with some information not often told. My name is David Kenworthy and I was master of the lodge when we put the presentation together. With me this evening are our lodge chaplain, Reverend Canon Godfrey Hurst. Our lodge director, <laughs> <laughs> our lodge director of ceremonies, Bill Swindlehurst, and Alan Davis, who is our senior overseer. Formby Podcast is an independent production. It comes to you free. If you'd like us to tell your story, or you know of a story, contact us at formbypodcast at gmail.com. See you next time. Thank you.